Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and it is Thursday. There's a lot of things that we're keeping our eye on, including the health worries about uh, the queen. We do not know at this point what her condition is. Uh, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but to say that that her passing will be the end of an epoch seems to understate it. And of course, we're joined today by David Priest, our good friend, the chief operating officer of Lawfare. So David, I, I don't know what to say about uh, the, the queen at this point, except you think about the historic sweep of her reign She's outlasted 12 U.S. presidents. And I, what was it, uh, the 15 British prime ministers? <laughs> it's just an extraordinary story. The stunning statistic that gets me, Charlie, is that she is approaching 33% of American history. That is, she's right around 30% <laughs> now. But if she, if she lives a little That's bit amazing. longer, she could approach one third of all of American history, which is just stunning. Well, I'm, I'm looking at uh, some of the reporting from, uh, actually old reporting from The Guardian, anticipating what will happen when, when the queen actually dies. That was a fantastic article from about five years ago. It's absolutely stunning talking about the actual process that has been laid out for this. London Bridge is down, the secret plan for the days after the queen's death. She is venerated around the world. She has outlasted 12 U.S. presidents. She stands for stability and order. But her kingdom is in turmoil. This is five years ago. And her subjects are in denial that her reign will ever end. That's why the palace has a plan. Let me just read the first paragraph. In the plans that exist for the death of the queen, and there are many versions held by Buckingham Palace, the government and the BBC, most envision that she will die after a short illness. Her family and doctors will be there. When the queen mother passed away on the afternoon of Easter Saturday in 2002 at the Royal Lodge in Windsor, she had time to telephone friends to say goodbye and to give away some of her horses. In the last hours, the Queen's senior doctor will be in charge, but he will look after his patient, control access to a room, and consider what information should be made public. The bond between sovereign and subjects is a strange and mostly unknowable thing. A nation's life becomes a person, and then the string must break. You know, and obviously this would mean that uh, Charles would become king, but the, hmm. the, the signal that will go out will uh, be London Bridge is down. At the BBC, they've apparently suspended uh, all of their coverage for the day. They're, they're going to do this wall to wall, and all of the anchors are wearing black ties. I think you can read, you know, something into that. So it's definitely something that's historic because she is such a, a unique monarch, and it also gives us a window into something that that we don't do quite the same way here. Obviously, a, a passing of a president is something that we've noted, and obviously, we haven't had a uh, currently serving president who has died in office in quite some time, but even a former president, there's a lot of attention. There's there's a whole lot of planning that goes into before the death of how are they going to do the service? How are they going to do the the showing in the Capitol? Things like that. But that doesn't compare to what they've been doing for decades to prepare for the queen's death. So there's a lot of people who are ready, many moving parts, a lot of people who know what to do, but it is still going to be, I mean, think about the world when she took yeah. took over in the 1950s compared to today, especially in terms of the British Empire, but also in terms of everything that's happened uh, through the Cold War, 9-11. Uh, We've got such a different world, obviously entering the United Kingdom into the EU and then Brexiting out of it again. So she's she's lived through quite a lot, and I think it is going to be important to reflect on her reign when she does pass. 
and not just the history, but also the values that she embodied. I mean, she is really a figure from from another century. Yeah, uh, putting the values of of duty uh, ahead of everything else, which of course put her put her very very crosswise with the culture at, at many times, which was more comfortable with with the the celebrification, if that's a word, mm-hmm. of the royalty. She was always of that very very old school. And it's hard to imagine future generations being able to embody that. But I, maybe that's maybe I'm being too pessimistic. I mean, you know, Charles will have a a reign that will last, you know, a, you know, you know, perhaps several uh, decades, and then will pass on to a new, much younger generation. And uh, and and Prince William seems to get that older culture, but able to update it a little bit. I'm getting ahead of myself now. But. You and I are old enough to remember when. Prince Charles married Diana and everybody was talking about this, this young person who was yeah. changing the face of the monarchy. And it sure doesn't seem that way now. Prince Charles uh, is in, in some ways more of a, a laughing stock for some of his alternative science views and other things. Um, but you really do see him as a transition monarch Very much because so. he is already, what, 73 years old, if I recall correctly. And his reign could be very short, could be a couple of decades. We don't know, but William has a different connection with both the British people um, and with with the world and modern times. And I think Charles will be, in a sense, seen as just a continuation of his his mother's reign in some ways. And who knows? He may even choose to abdicate and just pass it on to his son, mm-hmm. which would be welcome in many quarters. It would be. Just think for a moment. I'd be interested to seeing a statistic. What percentage of living Britons? And living Americans have known no other uh, <laughs> monarch other than Queen Elizabeth. That's I right. Mean, you know, she. You know, I, I am not a spring chicken, believe it or not. Um, and uh, she's been queen longer than I've been alive. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm guessing that the vast majority of Britons, you know, are going to wake up one day and realize that something that's always been a fixture in their lives right. is gone. Yeah, and that that is that is something that will be a psychological shock, even though. People have been preparing for it for quite some time. And when the, yeah. cre- the queen mum died, they had almost a preview of what would happen. But yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting chance to reflect on history and to see how the British culture and identity is evolving, certainly differently than it is in the United States. Well, I want to uh, move ahead. I want to get your thoughts about what's going on with the Mar-a-Lago documents, uh, the recent decision by um, a, a federal judge, Eileen Eileen Cannon uh, to appoint a special master and the latest reports about the nuclear data and, of course, uh, other things that are going on in this ongoing fight for uh, democracy. But can I just mention a story that I'm, I'm personally a little bit obsessed with? Mm-hmm. Um, it just, and it may not be on most people's radar screen. This story out of Las Vegas over the last 24 hours where a very well-known investigative reporter for the Las Vegas Review-Journal named Jeff German, who had been exposing corruption and malfeasance in local government, was murdered earlier this week. He was stabbed to death. Jeff German was stabbed to death. I mean, with all, all the controversy, reporters in this country are, are seldom murdered. But it turns out that police have now arrested a prominent political figure in Las Vegas, Clark County Public Administrator Robert Tellis, who was arrested on suspicion of murder uh, last night in the fatal stabbing of this reporter. And German had been investigating, Tellis had written a lot about the public administrator, which I think it may be a county executive in in other states. He had exposed Tellis's uh, malfeasance 
which resulted in him, uh, Robert Tellis, being defeated in the primary. And so, you know, this comes after, you know, police had asked for public health and identifying a suspect in the case. And they did this early morning search of, of the public administrator's home. And it provided, you know, the indication that the killing, which was last Friday, you know, might be related to Germans' work exposing public wrongdoing. And apparently this reporter was pursuing a potential follow-up story about uh, TELUS in the weeks before he was killed. So, I mean, you have, you know, the top, one of the top officials in Clark County, Nevada government, who apparently went out and stabbed an investigative reporter to death. It's it amazing. The more news you read about it, the more disturbing it is. And and I don't know what to do with it because I don't know the background to the story well enough other than the reports that, yeah. that you've also characterized there. I I find myself fighting the instinct to put it in the context of the larger political environment that we've had increasing political violence and increasing rhetoric around political violence. It's been building up for some time now, but recently it has been much more dramatic and we have all of the experts warning. This is kind of what we see in other countries when things go downhill. Let's not normalize political violence. Now, this isn't necessarily that, but that's immediately where I go to that. It, it falls into that pattern of thinking for me that as a country, we're, we're in a place where this news comes and maybe you and I are shocked by the details, but I think most people see it and, and just shrug. And that yeah. makes me very sad. Well, and, and one of the reasons why I'm, I'm slightly obsessed with this story is that I had a very, very close friend uh, some years ago who was a Wisconsinite who moved out to Las Vegas and became, at that time, Las Vegas's number one investigative reporter. His name was Ned Day. And Ned has passed away of, of natural causes. But Ned was a very, very aggressive reporter in, in the very way that they described this Jeff German. And I remember that he was always concerned about the question of violence. He actually, he was completely fearless. But back then, I think he was more concerned about the mob, you know, obviously, which has, which has a little bit of clout in Las Vegas. And he really liked exposing the mob bosses. And I remember, you know, having conversations with him about that. And he sort of had a certain bravado about it, but, but it was very real. And he took it, he took it seriously, although it did not, it didn't phase him in any way. So, you know, to pick up the paper today, metaphorically speaking, and to see that, you know, one of the successors of my good friend, uh, Ned, in fact, was murdered by one of these corrupt local officials is, is kind of stunning. So that's that's my personal connection to this story. OK, speaking of flashbacks, you and I were chatting about this right before we started in my newsletter today. I lead off with with something that our good friend Christian Vanderbrook reminded uh, me of that I had completely forgotten if I ever even knew it. He reminds us that back in 2012, after Mitt Romney lost to Barack Obama, Donald Trump went on this mad tear calling for a revolution in this country. We should march on Washington and stop this travesty, Obama's reelection. Let's fight like hell and stop this great and disgusting injustice. So again, and maybe it's not breaking news that Donald Trump has this long career of election denialism and lying. But you go back and you read this about the 2012 election, and it's word for word what he has to say about the 2020 election, including the calls for marching on Washington. And of course, his facts are complete bullshit. You know, he makes stuff up. He has the numbers all wrong. But again, the details don't matter for Donald Trump because they are all pretexts. He will never, ever 
under any circumstance, acknowledge the legitimacy of any electoral defeat. If he runs for president again and he loses any Republican primary, Republicans have to have to understand this. You know, they've been riding this tiger. Uh, he will never acknowledge that. And if he loses in 2024, there's no way that he will um, ever regard it as as legitimate. But did you remember that he went off on this tear calling for a revolution and, you know, our nation is totally divided. Let's fight like hell and stop this great and disgusting. And did you remember that he was doing that back in 2012? I did not remember because I doubt that I even knew it in the first place. Yes, I'm politically yeah. aware and listening to political discourse, but unlike some untold millions of Americans, I was not watching The Apprentice. I did not give a shit about Donald Trump as a celebrity TV show host, former deal maker. He was not in the top thousand people that I was paying attention yeah. to what he was saying. That's the key. So he could have been tweeting these things out and it looks like you brought the receipts uh, in your newsletter. You you lay out exactly yeah. what he said. Just a, a complete rant diatribe against the 2012 election, which as you and I recall, was not exceptionally close. And yet yeah. he was claiming that it was a disgusting injustice. The world is laughing at us. We need a revolution. People should march to the Capitol. I'm not surprised that it happened because I don't think that the January 6th insurrection and the incitement of it, we certainly saw the clues to that long before. It was not a surprise when he he had already said that he was not willing to accept the results of the election unless he won. It doesn't surprise me that it goes back 10 years. And in fact, we may find evidence that it went back before then that he simply sure. just says, if I lose, it's because of fraud or cheating. Um, if I win, it's because that's what was supposed to happen. And that mind frame, that mindset has probably been established for a long, long time. It's just now people are paying attention to it. I think it goes back to arrested development. This is a man who mm -hmm. basically he can never lose. He can only be betrayed or cheated. And this is, you know, built built into all of this. Mm -hmm. So but, you know, to your point, you know, I don't remember this. You don't remember this. Mo nobody remembers this because nobody was really paying attention to Donald Trump back then. And no one could have imagined back then that this would morph into what we're facing today. This is one of those things where it was there but it was this tiny spot on the horizon. We didn't think that it was going to be this massive hurricane aimed at all of us. Uh, so, I mean, all the clues are out there. It's one of the reasons why, you know, one of the lessons I think I've learned from the last decade is even though you're tempted to sort of dismiss some crackpot out there on the fringes, um, what we've seen again and again is if those things are not challenged, they grow and they spread. And before you know it, we're all in the shit. You raise a really good point yeah. there. Um, we're in the place now, and we'll probably end up talking, I don't know, a little bit today about things like Mar-a-Lago documents and reporting about what they are. Um, we're in a place now where we're getting, like we did with the Mueller report, we're getting lawyer after mm -hmm. lawyer coming on cable news explaining the fine points of this statute or this statute and whether it actually applies and the prudential issues of charging a president. That That's all good. We, we have to do that. But let's go back a step. Let's go to the bigger picture. In 2012, we had a human being tweeting these things about an election that, as far as I can tell, nobody anywhere near a position of power thought was in any way fraudulent or worthy of a revolution at all. We had, we had this human being out there saying these things and going on what seems to be a deranged rant about it. And then 
we kind of forgot about that when 2016 came along and decided that, oh, well, this man is constitutionally suited uh, to be commander in chief. So, yeah, we need to look at the details (laughs) of the, the legal picture and all of that. But let's go back to that first fundamental assessment of character. Is somebody... Is somebody able to be president of the United States or, frankly, any elected office from the school board up to the commander in chief? Do they have the core ethics and principles, whether you agree with their policies or not? I may disagree violently uh, with people over marginal tax rates or certain social policies, but do they have the fundamental character and temperament to hold public office? And it's evident from this tweet stream in 2012 that he did not. And yet that was all just brushed aside in 2016. And we seem to lose sight of that, that we have the ability to judge someone unfit to be even considered for public office. And we need to you know, treat them as worthy of the scorn that they bring upon themselves for rants like this. Yeah, well, I mean, some of us tried and we know how that all turned out. So well, now we fast forward to today. And let's talk about these, what's going on with the, with the Mar-a-Lago documents. Uh, we, we had the, okay, I, I talked about this yesterday. I find it fascinating that Bill Barr, the former attorney general, who was one of the most zealous and I would say disingenuous uh, defenders of uh, of Donald Trump, who mm-hmm. was responsible for, I think, uh, distorting and, and frankly lying about uh, the Mueller report. I mean, mm-hmm. this guy really was prepared to torch his entire legacy and, and reputation. And yet since then has decided that, that in fact, there were red lines he, he was not willing to, uh, to cross. He wasn't willing to go along with the big lie about the election. And then we have this uh, Trump-appointed federal judge, Eileen Cannon, who issued the decision the other day that uh, appointed a special master, and I think more importantly, we'll get into this, blocked the Department of Justice from continuing to investigate any of the documents, including the, the most, most, most secret documents that they recovered from Mar-a-Lago. And here is Bill Barr talking about that decision. I want to get your reaction to this. Let's let's play that. Opinion, I think, was wrong, and I think the government should appeal it. Uh, it's deeply flawed in a number of ways. <clears throat> I don't think the appointment of a special uh, master is going to hold up, but even if it does, I don't see it fundamentally changing the trajectory. I, in other words, I don't think it changes the ball game so much as maybe we'll have a rain, uh, rain delay for a couple yeah. of innings. But I think that the fundamental dynamics of the case are set, which is the government has very strong evidence of what it really needs to determine whether charges are appropriate, which is government documents were taken, classified information was taken and not handled appropriately. And uh, they are looking into, and there's some evidence to suggest that they were deceived. And, And none of that really relates to the content of documents. It relates to what the fact that there were documents there and the fact that they were classified and the fact that they were subpoenaed and never delivered. But they don't have to show the content, you know, the specific advice given in a memo, for example, in order to prevail in this case. Okay, so David, I feel like I've taken crazy pills because there's Bill Barr who is that he's, he's, he's making sense and he's being very aggressive, I think, in not only challenging the ruling, but suggesting that DOJ has a pretty solid case there. Yeah, he's reading it correctly here and he's in yeah. line with 99% of, of analysts who look at this case and it proves that Bill Barr can read and think, which we all suspected he could, but was questionable 
with the, what he did with the Mueller investigation. Um, in this case, as I mean, we, we have a difference, right? Is here we have the redacted affidavit. We have the information that has come out about it. It's, it's a much more limited set of circumstances than the Mueller investigation. Um, so it is harder to spin. The facts are, are much easier to digest than the Mueller report was. Um, but that's not to excuse Bill Barr. What he did at that case was yeah. unconscionable and unworthy of, of an attorney general. And he should have been forced to resign at a minimum at that point. In this case, he's just right. He's, he's looking at it and saying there is no rational justification uh, for what this judge is doing. Now, does it matter? No. Uh, Bill Barr did not stand with the president after uh, January 6th. And I have a feeling that his words mean nothing to the former president and the people no. around him. And frankly, it's interesting to us. Um, I also chuckled when I, when I saw that. But I don't think we want to pay too much attention to it because it's not as if he has fully come around and repented for what he did during the administration. So the fact that he's right kind of falls for me in that metaphor of a broken clock, right? It's still going to be right, right twice a day. And this is just one of those times when Bill Barr has to call it that way. Yeah, I'm not looking to rehabilitate Bill Barr. Yeah. I'm mean, just pointing out that how extreme the story is about the dialogue. So let's go back to the... Let's go back to the, you know, the, the, the underlying story here. And, and this, this question feels foolish because I know what the answer is. And I don't generally like to ask, you know, just the, the most predictable question. But, but David Priest, you have been, uh, you've dealt with uh, sensitive information. You are familiar with the world of intelligence. Yeah. If you had documents like this Whoa. in your bedroom at home, what would happen to you? Wow. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> I've been having this debate with, with several people who've dealt with uh, legal cases involving people who had uh, government documents in their home. And not all of them are prosecuted. Sometimes right. there are just administrative sanctions if it's a current employee. Sometimes there's the threat of, of, of indictment or other criminal activity, but it doesn't happen. But that's often when there's something like one inadvertent document and sometimes something that isn't even classified that is being taken outside of government spaces. Uh, we're not talking about that. We, we are talking about something that is much larger than anything that has ever happened in a case like this. Um, the only comparisons are something like an Edward Snowden case, right? Where somebody takes a bunch of material and absconds with it. Um, there are some important differences there, but there's also some important similarities just in terms of the mass amount of materials that are taken and the damage that they could do. Um, this, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of pages of classified material in various, it appears, various different compartments that could sacrifice uh, untold amounts of intelligence collection and expose sources and methods. Um, if I were to have one one hundredth of this material in my house in the first place, they would definitely come, take it, and almost certainly pursue some kind of penalty against me. If they said, we suspect you have something, and I turned it over, and then they found I had something else, then I think the gloves would be off. Uh, I think the deference being shown to the former president is admirable up to a point in order not to antagonize, to give him every benefit of the doubt to try to come forward and give up these materials. But at a certain point, you have to think, would anybody other than the former president be treated this way and given this much time to produce 18 months, Charlie, some of these materials 
or in a country club in Florida that is unsecure. 18 months of some of the most sensitive secrets the U.S. government has. This is not something that that would be afforded to anybody else. So the report yesterday in The Washington Post was that some of the documents included information about the nuclear capabilities of another country. We don't know whether it's a it's a friend or a foe. What do you make of that? And, and is that in a different category than all the other top secret documents we're talking about? Yeah, I read that report very carefully. And the first two paragraphs are really key. In the first paragraph, they refer to a document that detailed a foreign government's defense planning, including nuclear capabilities, uh, with no further details. Presumably, that means a country that has nuclear capabilities, although it's possible that they're talking about a country with nascent capabilities, that is a, a program, but it's still a very limited set of countries that they're talking about. That piece alone is disturbing because unlike a report that says the former president has classified information that could refer to 197 different countries around the world and various transnational groups and individuals. But now you've limited the set of countries to very few that now know that something was exposed uh, for 18 months at Mar-a-Lago. If you're that country, and we don't know which one it is, but if you're any of those countries, this is a chance to review your security procedures, to take extra measures, to change your codes, to do all the things you might do if you expect that some of your security around your nuclear capabilities has been compromised. So there's a, a high likelihood that intelligence collection on whatever country this is, is, is going to face some challenges because of that one single issue. Now, the second paragraph does something different. And they, the, the authors of the piece uh, write it up slightly differently. They say that also within the seized documents or among the seized documents are some very highly compartmented things, things that only a few people get to see and only people like the president and a few cabinet yeah. secretaries can authorize others to read. It's not clear that that also governs that nuclear report. These could be two separate things they're talking about. But that part is just as disturbing because some of these SAPs, the uh, controlled access programs there, these sometimes have just a few people who are allowed to see the material because it is so sensitive. It was so hard to collect. The damage to U.S. national security, if exposed, is so grave. That disturbs me because I know the great efforts it takes over many years and sometimes at great personal risk for both collectors and the spies we recruit to get that information. If some of that was exposed to somebody during the 18 months at Mar-a-Lago, there's there's a whole lot of time and effort that went into getting that information that is now foreclosed because they will have no choice but to give up that intelligence collection method at this point. So there's been a lot of, I would say, slightly uh, unhinged speculation about why Trump has those documents. You even had a Fox News host, of all people, suggesting that he might have wanted to sell them. Uh, his former attorney, Michael Cohen, I believe, uh, was on one of the cable shows yesterday suggesting that he was keeping them in order to blackmail um, the government uh, to, you know, essentially extort uh, uh, the, the the federal government. You know, if you do X to me, I am prepared to do Y. I think that is, again, uh, you know, complete speculation. But it still leaves the question hanging. Why do you think he had all those documents? 
What was this about? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this, Charlie, and I've been asked a lot about it lately. And I'll give you one caveat, and then I, I will do some light speculation. So the caveat is trying to get inside Donald J. Trump's headspace is is challenging, and Always it's, it's a dangerous endeavor. Risky. Yeah. So there's that. With that caveat, let, let me lay out a theory for you, and I want I want to hear what you think of mm-hmm. it. So it is possible. I cannot rule out that he kept these materials for the purposes of of blackmail, either of the U.S. government or of other governments. I can't rule out that he had this material because he wanted to sell it and make money off of the presidency. Um, it's it's possible that these things happened. We don't have enough evidence to rule them out. However, I go to the simplest explanation, which is based on what we already do know about Donald Trump and his personality. We have evidence going back decades of his, shall we say, fondness of collecting things uh, said about himself. He -hmm. wants to keep reports of what is written about him. He would have people literally clipping newspapers for articles about him. He would, you know, fetishize magazine covers that featured him and even manufacture them. He wanted to collect stuff about him and around him. So what is more likely that he was playing some version of eight dimensional chess and getting documents that in some future scenario he could use to blackmail someone if something happened or that he, there was just some cool stuff that either mentioned him or had to do with some meeting he had that he thought was great. And he just kind of threw it in a drawer because he collects that kind of stuff. I, I got to go with the latter as the first explanation until proven otherwise, because a narcissistic personality who is known to collect material about himself or about things that he thinks he's done, that is a very simple, elegant explanation for why he just habitually, as he's done for decades, gathered a bunch of stuff that was about him and kept it because that's what he's always done. Yeah, there are other reports suggesting that he was keeping documents that uh, that he thought would show that there was a deep state plot against him, that he wanted to keep certain quote unquote Russiagate documents uh, that, you know, or other uh, pieces of information that he thought that he could use to defend himself against, uh, you know, what, whatever or, or, or to spin. That also seems to be consistent with the sort of the narcissistic, you know, paranoia that you see from him, that if he thought he had a document that he could use for leverage or to look, this is a president, I think it's safe to say who will never write his memoirs. This is not going to happen. So I'm not sure how he would use it. But considering that he's probably been plotting a return to uh, the, the presidency, you know, since, you know, before January 6th, obviously, he was keeping documents that Perhaps he thought that he could weaponize in some way, politically, legally, historically. I don't know. He doesn't think historically, so let's leave that off. Yeah, I I can't rule anything out. I have to go back to my intelligence analyst training at this point and say we don't know. We don't have enough information to know what the purpose was. But you know what? That's why we want a robust and full Department of Justice investigation into this to figure out what happened What do we know from interviews of people around? What do we know from any other clues we have? What was he going to do with these? Or even worse, what had he already done with these other than keep them in a desk drawer or keep them in a carton in a closet? But unfortunately, we have an investigation that has been stalled. Um, And these are very important questions. We're not talking about some material that perhaps was 
overclassified or material that should not have been classified in the first place. We can have a conversation nationally about that later. The classification scheme we have probably is broken in some fundamental ways. But when you're talking about the kinds of documents that are being reported, secrets about another country's nuclear capabilities, nobody doubts that the United States, number one, should be collecting on that, and number two, that that should be tightly protected. If that's what we're talking about, then you know what? We don't, we don't have any issue about whether this was properly classified and whether I had the right to keep it. Um, that's an open and shut case. This is something the former president should not have. No other former president ever tried to keep tons of government documents after the Presidential Records Act came into effect. There's a system for processing this during the transition. They work to make sure that all of the government papers, the presidential papers, are taken away by the archivists. And something got in the way of that. We need this investigation now to figure that out before something that happened during these last 18 months continues to cascade. So as we're discussing this, there is uh, a new NewsHour Marist poll that finds that 61% of Republicans say they want Trump to run for president in 2024, even if he is charged with a crime. Now, I talked about this before on this podcast because I was asked the question. So, well, if Donald Trump was indicted, um, you know, would he still be able to run? Would he still win the nomination? Would Republicans still nominate, you know, someone who has been charged with a felony? And, and my answer was, yes, they will. And here's a poll showing nearly two thirds of Republicans say, yeah, it doesn't bother us. Uh, if he is running for president while he is under federal indictment. There's your new political normal. The only head-twisting rationalization I can, uh, I can put on that is that the assumption among many of those people responding to the poll is that it would be an unjust investigation and an yeah. unjust indictment because it is simply irrational for somebody to say if it actually is a reasonable indictment a uh, reasonable investigation leading to a reasonable indictment that this person should be considered yeah. to be president of the United States. It's, it's, it's patently ridiculous. Yeah. This is why it's so important for Trump to delegitimize any critic. I mean, delegitimize the media, delegitimize the FBI, delegitimize the, you know, the Mueller investigation and the department of justice. And they've been very, very effective doing that. I also just wonder, I mean, it's a, you know, just a question, you know, since there is all this, you know, polling and conventional wisdom out there, is is there a distinction possibly between what people will tell a pollster? Because right now it's like rallying around the guy. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not abandoning Trump and all those bastards. I'm not going to um, versus what would actually be the political environment if he faced these criminal charges. I mean, I wonder whether there's a there's a little bit of, you know, bravado among the people being polled here just saying, yeah, it doesn't matter what you say or do about him. I'm with him. But there's a voice in my head saying, you know, indictments are a BFD and they would matter. But maybe we've already passed this tipping point. I mean, it's very possible, isn't it? You know, we keep saying, what is the tipping point? Maybe we already are. Maybe we are. Um, the closest the closest data we have to it is the 2020 election, right? When we didn't have an indictment, but we did have plenty of information out there uh, from the Mueller report, from the Ukraine uh, scheme, and then from the unwillingness to uh, say that he would accept the results, results of the election. There was plenty of evidence of the president acting in ways that were dramatically different than, than his predecessors. 
and you had the polling and the voting pretty much showing the same thing. That is voters saying that they would support Trump. Um, and then they did go out and vote for Trump. So you didn't have a big divergence in the polling. So the, the question you're asking is whether knowing all of that, knowing all the issues of character, knowing all the previous scandals, people were still willing to both uh, say they would vote for him and then follow through and do it in, in largely the same numbers. Your question is, would an actual indictment change that? Yeah. The poll know. suggests, uh, I think, somewhat yes, because if you said, what, 63%? Is that the number you cited? I think 61. So 61%. Yeah. Well, that's 61%. You know, that's not 71, 81, 91%. So maybe it is reflecting that there already is some slippage. But of course, 61% of people saying, yes, that's perfectly fine with us. Um, even if that holds, that's disturbing. I I don't know a way of disaggregating it, but I suspect you're right. I suspect that there would be some additional slippage if there were an actual indictment, uh, certainly if there were a, a conviction by the time uh, an election came up. Yeah. But you know what? I have learned over the last few years that there really is no bottom for a vast uh, swath of the U.S. population. And it's sad. I don't want to admit that. But there there are going to be some people who would be even more motivated to vote if he is indicted. There would be people who are even more motivated to, to vote if he were convicted. And I don't know what that percentage is. I think it's dramatically less than 61%, but I can't be confident saying that it is down around 20 or 30. It might actually be more than that. But you make an interesting point here. And, and I, I think that it's, it's sort of easy to catastrophize the number, which is which is embarrassing. It's beyond troubling. Uh, the 61% of Republicans would think he should run for president despite the indictment. But as you point out, 61% is not 91%. And we've talk, been talking a lot about that 3% of swing voters who are not hardcore MAGA, write them off. But there are people who might have gone along with him, voted for him for a variety of different reasons. And if if you peel off, you know, 10% of Republican voters, that's devastating in a closely divided country. Uh, that's right. When you are looking at the possibility of nearly 40% of Republicans going, yeah, the indictment thing is not that good. We're not that into that. That's also a big number. And it's worth keeping this in mind. Okay, so let me talk about it. Just bounce another hot take I saw in one of the national news magazines saying that, you know, all of these headlines coming out of Mar-a-Lago are actually good for Donald Trump because it is pushing the January 6th investigation off the front pages. So all of the attention to that, you know, has now been erased, which struck me as as a real, what is the disease of, you know, pundititis, you know, like overthinking things? Yeah. Because I, I think that you also get this cumulative effect because you know the January 6th stuff is coming back. I don't see it that way. I actually thought that Karl Rove had an interesting point when he said, you know, this is just not good for Republicans because the longer we talk about Mar-a-Lago, the less likely they are to be able to get their message out on the issues that frankly favor them in the midterm election. So I think there's a lot of hot take punditry out there mm -hmm. that assumes that we know a lot of stuff that we don't know. Yeah, I think your conversation yesterday with Mike Murphy really brought yeah, this out. We that, were talking about that yeah. anytime that you have candidates out on the trail who are, are talking to potential voters who aren't hearing in the news primarily about you know, inflation or about border issues, whatever it is that the Republican candidate wants to talk about, then it, it does favor the Democrats, uh, the, the opponents to those Republican candidates. And listen, 
it's not as if in the last month that there would have been a steady stream of January 6th, the news. Uh, the January 6th committee is not holding hearings now. The They had their burst of activity and they're going to resume again soon with some additional information. But the last month has been a relatively quiet period anyway. So anyway, it's, it's, been it's a little bit, <laughs> I don't want to say disingenuous. I just think maybe it's just undercooked analysis thinking that this is somehow bad because it's distracting from the narrative of the January 6th committee. Guess what? The The narrative of the January 6th committee is disrupted about 24 hours after their most recent hearing because the, the attention moves elsewhere anyway. So this in, in no way, I think, is this positive for the former president, especially, you know, thinking about the no. presidential run, because it it is putting back onto people's radar the fact that this is controversial, the fact that this is drama, the kind of thing that got Joe Biden elected was In not passion place. for Joe Biden. The thing that got Joe Biden elected was America can't can't keep this up. This this level of negative drama in this spiral that we're in, we need to get out of it. And guess what? This is bringing all of that up again. And then the January 6th committee will kick in again later this year. And I that will come back too. It's, it's like a tag team. Yep. So, uh, you know, one, one, one last one last comment about uh, the midterms. Um, and we've talked about this before. I don't think there's any way to overstate the potential impact of the Dobbs decision. But here's a, a follow-on effect of, of the Dobbs decision, which is really quite remarkable that uh, you know, Senate negotiators right now are pushing toward uh, a vote to codify same-sex marriage later this week. There's a group of senators led by uh, Tammy Baldwin uh, from, from Wisconsin, Susan Collins, scrambling to get 10 Republicans to support this measure. And this is clearly a reaction to the court's willingness to overturn 50-year uh, precedent with of, of Roe versus Wade and Clarence Thomas's suggestion that you know, if we apply this logic, um, we would also overturn the uh, the gay marriage r- ruling. So this could actually happen in a bipartisan way, which, you know, we, we get sort of get numbed about how dysfunctional everything is. But that would be pretty extraordinary, wouldn't it? If you actually had a filibuster proof majority right. that codified same sex marriage because neither party now can really be that confident that they know what the Supreme Court will do or its adherence to precedents. And, and I think we are close to that uh, filibuster-proof majority mm-hmm. based on uh, the tea leaves I've seen because you've got people talking to their own constituents. You've got people talking to at least hundreds of thousands, uh, depending on their state, and maybe millions of people who you know now are in a position where if something were to change, it, w- it would change their their marital status. And that's something that senators see differently than something that's theoretical or potential. I mean, they have people coming to campaign events who are telling them, I I am married now. I have the full protection under the law of the state for that marriage, and that is at risk, and that is now my number one voting issue. That speaks to some of these senators. I think you mentioned Susan Collins. Wouldn't surprise mm-hmm. me if Rob Portman and others yeah, like that right. are, are in this category mm-hmm. of people who realize not only is it the right thing to do, which I, I think is is still undervalued in politics these days, but it actually is the rational thing to do uh, for a candidate who who's in the right political environment. So I am positive on this. I actually think that there will be agreement to do this, that enough Republican senators will join the, the Democratic senators to codify this in law. And that will not by itself change the dynamics for every race in the fall, 
but it does show that yes, people people can come together on certain issues like this, which is something that Biden has uh, honestly surprised a lot of people with what he's been able to do to get enough votes on enough measures, some with Republican support, um, to get things passed. And this would be quite a step towards uh, doing even more of that before the midterms and, of course, before the next presidential election. Well, it would. And, uh, you know, speaking of, you know, Tammy Baldwin, who is a you know, senator from Wisconsin, the senior senator from my state, uh, Ron Johnson, has uh, executed a complete flip-flop on the issue early on. He was saying he saw no reason why he would simply, you know, not vote right. to, to, to to codify something that is right now the law of the land. In fact, that's a very, very easy vote when you think about it. However, he got pressure from uh, the right, you know, social conservatives on the right here in Wisconsin and has now flip-flopped suggesting that he's not going to vote in favor of it. He's working with Mike Lee on a religious liberty uh, amendment, which may or may not be a good idea. But, but you know, my colleague Tim Miller makes an interesting point. Usually when you have flip-flops, you have candidates flipping toward the more popular position rather than away from the popular position yes. to the toxic position. Yes. So here again is 2022, where you have Republicans who feel that they have no wiggle room, that they have to take you know, really toxic uh, positions on very divisive social issues right before the election. It's odd to me because that that's what you normally see before the primaries, right? And um, yeah, you're not in the primaries anymore. We're not in the primaries anymore. Yeah, right. So the the that pull to the extreme to to get the the bulk of that primary vote and then the the return to the center, the regression to the mean. There, it's it's not happening, and I can't explain it. Um, you you could say that it's actually true belief, but I don't believe that in most cases. Um, I feel like they're getting messages, and I don't know what Ron Johnson's um, supporters, such as they are, are still saying to him, but they may be hearing when they're out and around that people just won't show up to vote unless they're they're energized and he needs to take this strong yeah. stand or he loses the turnout in the places that he absolutely has to have turnout um, to, to make up for the losses he's gaining in, you know, wild counties and everywhere else. I, I don't know that, but that seems to me likely. Well, I, I think what's happened is you had the loudest voices, you know, who were basically saying you, you can't move on this, but, but this is a classic example of where if, if Johnson would have said, yeah, I'm going to vote for this, um, because it is the law of the land and people should rely on the law, uh, there would have been griping, but he would have lost zero votes zero votes. He would have pulled it off because there's no way that social conservatives are not going to vote for him anyway. And in fact, he might have softened his image with those suburban voters who right now are thinking he's too extreme, too crazy, too embarrassing. He is at risk in the wow counties because of the Dobbs decision. Yeah. This would have been a, hey, wait, let's give, you know, Ron Johnson a, you know, a, a second look. You know, Let me play the opposite card, yeah, Charlie. Yeah. I'm going I'm to make exactly the opposite sure. argument, which okay. is if he would have said, yes, I, I am in defense of this bill and I think this is something I have to stand behind. Um, I don't think there would have been that many people saying, you know what, after everything we've been seeing and reading and hearing about Ron Johnson in the last few months and last few years, I'm going to vote for him simply because of that over somebody that uh, <laughs> You're probably I think right. would be better. Yeah. And yet I think he would lose some hardcore I hate even to say social conservatives because I think it's beyond that now. But I think he would he would lose some cultists who would say, you know what, if you're not with me 100 percent, then you're against me and I'm just not going to show up. And guess what? He can't win this election yeah. unless he has really high turnout among that group. So I see it the opposite way that he made a calculation that 
in fact, he was better off doing this because he had absolutely has to have those votes. Yeah, well, that was a calculation he made. Okay, so one, one last note. I, I said that was the last note, but I continue to be absolutely fascinated by what's happening uh, in Ukraine and uh, UK intelligence, uh, you know, r- reporting just a little while ago, Ukrainian forces continue to launch offensive operations in the Kyrgyzstan region. And uh, the uh, defense ministry, the British defense ministry said Ukraine's systematic precision targeting of vulnerable crossing points is likely slowing Russia's ability to deploy troops and resupply from the east. So there were a lot of uh, people who were a little skeptical that they could, you know, mount this kind of offensive. You know, um, they have Kharkiv, uh, now Kyrgyzstan. So you have uh, two local operations um, and apparently, you know, some showing some success. So. Again, this war is, you know, kind of seems to be bogged down in a little bit of a stalemate, but it does seem, and I always try to separate out the the wish casting that they that the Ukrainians have a little bit of momentum. What do you think? Yeah, two things to keep in mind. First of all, the proverbial fog of war yeah. is we're getting remarkable disclosures from the Ukrainians, but they have an interest in telling the story one way. We're getting nothing reliable from the Russians. The UK has been leaning forward on trying to make its assessments public, but we don't know the sources of of their information. So let's take all of this with with some grain of salt just because you don't know what's actually going on. There does appear to be progress, but this war is a slog. This is not a move like the invasion of Iraq, where it was swift and it was decisive. Uh, Let's not talk about the aftermath, but the actual movement in was quick. That's what I think is in the, at least the American mentality now for what a war is. A war is quick, decisive, combined operations that take out all all the things the Russians didn't do, frankly. And what that's led to is a huge amount of territory here that is just bogged down. And the movements we're talking about are not hundreds and thousands of square miles of territory moving each week with progress. I mean, we're talking very small amounts of land and progress. So yes, the trend is a positive one. All of the military analysts I keep in touch with are saying the signs they're getting are that, yes, this the, the Ukrainians are pushing back and having some successes. But we should not be over-optimistic that in the coming days or even weeks, maybe even months, that we're going to see some dramatic turn in the war. It's a shift in momentum. It is not necessarily a path to a quick end to this. David Priest, thank you so much for your time and for coming back on the podcast. We always appreciate it. Always a pleasure. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. Do this all over again.